0: I'd like to be in the dark up here. Okay, I am. Let's start this. I'm going to take two minutes, and only two minutes, because if I take more than two minutes, I will not have the emotional fortitude to actually get to Romans eight. So, um, but today is my last Wednesday with y'all. Not, we're not moving tomorrow, but. We move in less than six weeks, so for those of you that don't know, Andy accepted a call in Tennessee, and so December 16th, the Wyatts pack up for the fifth time in their marriage, and they we we, we start a new journey, and um, a truth about me is I'm terrible at goodbyes. I'm, I'm utterly terrible at them, and practice hasn't made me perfect at it. Um, I've gone through five tearful goodbyes now, and I have yet to have gotten good at it, and the problem when you're not... Good at a goodbye is you forget to say the things to the people you love that needed to be said. So I just want to do it. Um, As I've been asked a lot in these past couple months, you know, how's the move? Are you excited? I give really awkward, weird answers, and I. um, And this is the truth of why I do. We, and when I say we, it goes down from Andy to little Miles, who's never sad. That we are sad to our bones. I mean, I feel it in my bones. And I've had a hard time talking about it um, until the Lord, I really just kept laying all this sadness at his feet. And I learned to be grateful for that sadness because it's a testament to this church and it's a testament to these women here. Because the reason I am so sad is because ministry has been so sweet. So for over five years, we have been ministered to, we have ministered with, we have been loved, we have grown in grace with all of you dear people and it's devastating to leave. Um, and a lot of pastors and their wives and their families don't have that story. I don't know if y'all know that, but a lot of pastors and their families have very hard stories. And Andy and I can say with all rejoicing that we have felt loved, and we will. First Pres is something so dear to us. So we we love you and we thank you. And the word thank you seems so deficient, but it's all I've got. So. Thank you, and that's where I'll end. Okay, so we can get to Romans 8. Uh, Because I'm not good at goodbyes. And so for the people that I really love out there, I'm going to really try to give you a goodbye. So, okay. So Romans 8. um, If you went to the amazing, amazing um, hymn sing a couple of weeks ago, which is my favorite thing we do at this church, and only poured salt in the wounds, Stella, as you mentioned that we have to leave. But anyways, Michael made the comment when he got up and spoke that, what's the greatest book of the Bible? And because we already knew Romans, hopefully everybody who was there said, Romans, and then, womp, womp, he said, what is the greatest chapter? And he said, Romans 3. Um, I'm sure Rom- Romans 3 is fabulous. Um, but I don't know where he got that. <laughs> because if you really start to ask those that are in the know, they're going to tell you Romans 8. <laughs> this is what they'll say. If Romans is the greatest book of the Bible... Romans Romans 8 is going to be the greatest chapter of the greatest book. Well, why? Why is Romans 8 so overwhelmingly sweet? Um, and so for the past couple chapters, Romans 6, 7, and 8, we've come to a section of Romans as it's outlined. That um, The theme is that how grace is going to reign in righteousness. Um, we saw union with Christ in 6. And then in chapter 7, we saw how we struggle with sin and our relationship to the law. And here we come to Romans 8, and its overarching message is that our struggles with sin will not ultimately undercut our salvation. It will not. Romans 8, is it, it's meant to be encouraging, so I hope that as we left our small groups, you felt nothing but encouragement. Um, there is no chapter in the Bible that takes such sweeping breath um, of substance and theology, because from the beginning to the end of the chapter, we are going to go from our life in Christ from death into life. We're going to go from justification to glorification, present struggles to eternal peace. Um, Derek Thomas has a wonderful book, and I have it right there. Um, It's called um, I found this book years ago, so when actually when um, Margaret asked me to do Romans 8, I was like, I'm already prepared. This book is called How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. And when I first read this book, I didn't know what it is about, but the title captivated me. I was just walking around I love the image of home. Um, I'm from a broken home, and so the image of home has always meant something, that a home that would be complete. And when I read that, and the gospel will bring us all the way home, and it would be about Romans 8. So Derek Thomas would give um, a sermon series over Romans 8, and his congregants loved it so much they begged him to make it into a book, and there it is. But in the opening of this book, he says chapter 8 brings us the completeness of salvation, and so that's what we have done And I will not get to talk about all that in its fullness, and so I'm just going to quickly move through a really important role, and that's the role of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about in small group. I mean, we really got to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. But when we think about how the gospel is going to bring us all the way home, you can't deny how the Holy Spirit's going to work it in through us. Um, In the greater evangelical faith, there is no shortage of talking about God the Father, the head of the Trinity, and um, as he sits in sovereignty and the Holy of Holies, we know he was before all and he's above all and he's through all and he's in all and there is certainly, nor should there be a shortage of the discussion of Christ our Redeemer our Savior, the perfect Lamb, the Lion of Judah. But while we all in here believe in the Trinity and the third person of the Holy Spirit, I think he mystifies us a bit, doesn't he? Um, and But Scripture tells us a lot about him. In Romans 8, man, he just gives us a lot about him. And so I want to step us through the first 21 verses of 8, just looking at our the Holy Spirit's role in our life. When Amanda ended her talk last week, which it was so beautiful, she she made the statement that she was going to steal the thunder of Romans 8, and you didn't. Instead, what you did was threw a pitch out, um, and hopefully I'll hit it. So. Um, We just left Romans 7, um, which we get to see the turmoil of Paul in which we all have just grappled with ourselves. And then he starts 8, and he starts it at just the perfect timing with, there is therefore now no condemnation. Could there be any sweeter words written in the whole Bible that we need to hear? There is therefore no now condemnation. And they're beautiful words, um, but I think if we're honest with ourselves. We, we struggle with the confidence of that. How do we, fellow believers who still struggle in sin, how do we, as fellow believers, who still just are bone-weary from the war we're trying to wage on sin, how do we, who have said with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, how do we actually have the confidence of Romans 8.1? Um, because... Paul had it and he and if we read it in the Greek, we would see all the emphaticness of that statement. But he tells us immediately, and that's verse two and it says, "The law of the Spirit of life has set us free. And he's talking about the work of the Spirit in our heart, how the moment that we are forged in union with Christ, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as, as instantly as justification happens, there comes the Holy Spirit. And he works, and I would almost kind of argue he's a little bit there getting us primed for that conversion moment, that moment when we see truth. He teaches to our hearts the gloriousness of the gospel, and he continually whispers to your soul, you have been set free, and it's there. Um, and that's why we go back to Scripture when we feel despair, and we go back to the Word, because the Spirit is there, and he's in our hearts and the reality of justification is that God accomplished it in a moment, and he accomplished it for us, but he didn't leave us there. I used to think that. I used to think after justification, we were left to toil and make our way to the end. And that's not true either. It's so wrong. He then not only worked at salvation, but he has then put the Holy Spirit in our life who will keep us moving through in sanctification. Um So we have this assurance that it is not us who will wage war against sin. It will be the Holy Spirit working through us who is going to wage war on our sin and to take comfort in that. And that's exactly what Paul wants in these first opening verses for us to know as readers and as fellow believers. He wants us to take comfort and he wants us to take confidence not because of how you feel, not because of what you've done or what you haven't done, not because of your circumstances, but because of what he has done and because of the continued work he is going to do in us. And so then he kind of starts moving. We're going to meander through life until we come to the end of life. We move into what it looks like, again, this worldliness versus godliness, which we come up with a lot in Scripture. Um, More than that, I think what he's pointing to is distinguishing between two ways of life that really are pointing to two different parts. Um, We start with five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And we read it all in in small group. We went through that. John Owens um, has this really famous quote. I've heard it over and over, and I'm sure you have. That our ordinary voluntary thoughts are the best measure and indication to the frame of our mind. It's true. What he's really saying is, what do you think about when you're thinking about nothing? Like when you're sitting in carpool, like what do you think about? Because I would dare say that the wanderings of our mind, like an arrow, point straight to our heart. And, and that's why Paul is taking us to the content of our thinking. Typically, when we hear the word flesh in scripture, we start to think of the flesh the earthly body, not so much here. What Paul is doing is he's contrasting those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and those who do not. First Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so when Paul is speaking of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, it is not merely our intellect, which we as good Presbyterians love to point to. But he's pointing to, yes, what we think about, but he's asking us about our heart. He's asking us about the decisions we make, the things we desire, the things we choose to worry about, um, our ambitions. And he's saying all of that will be given over to the Spirit he is impl- that someone who belongs to the Spirit has what we often call that kingdom perspective. As we go through the mundane thoughts, that the kingdom perspective sits over it all. And when you are in perfect union with Christ, there sits the Spirit, and He changes this in you. He is who will give us that kingdom perspective. He will take our ordinary wanderings. And he'll help us set them on himself in the things of above. And all of a sudden, all the comforts that are Romans 8 start to become ours. And so as we keep, so now we're moving on. We come into verse 12 and 17, and we have been, we got that first section, which is life in the spirit. That's how my Bible heads it. But then we move into the beauty of the heirs with Christ um, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Paul, I believe, has a twofold purpose here. Um, First is he wants us to be certain that we are, in fact, children of God because we are. And then the second thing is he wants us to act like children of God. Derek Thomas, in that book that I love so much, he says, being able to call our creator and our redeemer father and to be considered sons and considered a member of a family and where Jesus is our elder brother is the difference between living under the old covenant and the new. Being able to say, Abba, Father, is the heart of Christianity and it's our greatest privilege. And... The, I don't know if, we, if you realize this or not, um, John Calvin, he said that the adopter is the very first name of the Holy Spirit. We often wonder about the mystery of this adoption into the family, but when we first come into faith, at the, even at the very beginning, when we really have so little to show for a life in faith, we're taken into the family of God by the Holy Spirit, um, I often get asked this question, I don't know why, but how are you so certain that you will spend eternity with in heaven? And it's, it's so simple, because I'm, because I'm part of the family of God. Because God has set out the work, Christ achieved the righteousness, and the Holy Spirit seals it in. That's his work in our hearts. That is that spirit of adoption that scripture talks about. And because he has adopted us into the family, he will start to give us the family traits. We, um, when we think about the Holy Spirit, I want us to not wander into these thoughts that, okay, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit is a guide leading the way. Well, he's not merely a guide. He is, he is actually putting the energy in our steps in this race. He's the one who puts strength into every stride that we take in this run. He isn't simply giving us information like I am standing before you and your own brains have to somehow make sense of that. No, he's the one who gives us eyes to see. He gives us ears to hear, and he changes our hearts. (laughs) And in his indwelling, it's not this sense that somehow he's kind of wiggled for elbow room in what is this soul that I can't look at. No, he's not just vying for space, but he's actually taking all that is us and he's making what was old New, He is making us look like the family of God. I have a picture of my maternal grandfather. Actually, I have a picture of all my grandparents. But one in particular is my maternal grandfather, who I still love even though he's been gone so long now deeply. Um, I have two pictures of him, actually. But one that stands out to me is when he is in his 20s and he's in his uniform prior to going off to war. And when people see that picture, they always remark, Wow, Lauren, you look so much like your grandfather. Or when I've seen family of his that I haven't seen in a while, like his brother, he'll say, Man, you look like Ronnie. And no matter how many times I hear it, I just I swell with pride because I love him so much. I love him because he loved me. I love him because he was godly and he was wise. And, and so to even bear any kind of image of him is just one of my greatest treasures. And that's what the Holy Spirit will do to us. Um, the beauty of the indwelling of the Spirit of God is just this, that he will start to make us look like the Father. And now we kind of take er, a weird turn. We go into suffering. And it seems kind of like okay, this has been great. Romans 8 has been so encouraging. Why did we have to throw in that pesky suffering? And I think it's because Paul was sitting right there with the believers of his time and he knew exactly where we would be in the future. Um, because the sometimes doesn't the beauty of Romans 8 seem so far off? Um, I want to read 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. For the creation waits with either eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, um, Paul's reminding us right now that we dwell in a very fractured world. um, That as we sit amidst sorrow, sadness, grief, loss, pain, that the beauty of that all is scripture just almost seems out of reach. And so he's asking us for a moment to take our eyes and look above the shadows of this world and to see the light of light, the light of life that has come and he is coming again. Because Paul knew this well, no one knew suffering quite like Paul did. And it brings to mind, this illustration is used a lot, but I have never seen one that gets as close to comparing it. Um, I don't know any of you that have read The Lord of the Rings, but you probably watched it. And this story is not in the movie, which breaks my heart because it's the best part of the whole series of the books, Lord of the Rings. But a little bit goes like this. Um, Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins, they're who have to take the ring to Mount Doom to save Middle-earth. And they, Gandalf, the wise wizard, they lose very early on. He has to fight this, like, demon dragon, and he goes down into the pits of what looks like hell. But Sam and Frodo go on by themselves. They do. They, they begin the journey by themselves, and what they don't know is that Gandalf did not die. Um, and they won't know that till the end. And so y'all know, if you've watched the movie, Frodo throws the ring into Mount Doom. It's destroyed, and they think they're dead. I mean, they're left on that mountain that has now exploded. But... Gandalf comes with the eagles, and he saves them. And um, this part's what's missing. When Sam and Frodo are back in Rivendell, Sam opens his eyes, and he sees Gandalf. And he says, Gandalf, he said, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought myself was dead. Is all the sad now untrue? Is all the sad now untrue? And I've thought about that, and I've thought about that. Because what Sam is not saying, did all the sad not happen? And that, I believe, will be just a fraction of what it's like when we stand before the glory of the Father, that the sad will have been happened, but it'll be untrue because it'll make sense in the light of the glory of the Father. I even dare say that we will rejoice over it, that we will turn back to see our short life on this earth And rejoice over the suffering and of the pain because you'll have realized it had to happen just that way. And if it had happened any different, it would not have been perfect like the Lord designed. And so as we look at this from the beginning to the end, you know, this justification to this glorification, we're reminded that it's this, it's the gospel, and it's the Holy Spirit, that third head of the Trinity, that is going to see to the fact that you and I, Make it all the way home. Let me pray and close us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious book. You did not leave us here alone. You have given us such a help. That's why Christ said it is for your benefit that I leave because I'm sending you a helper. And you've given us your word that we come back to time and time again for strength, Lord. We thank you for it. And we pray that the words on these pages will renew our minds and it will increase our vigor, Lord, that we who are now no longer slaves to sin but have been set free to live, that we will live for you and glorify you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.